Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. All right. Well, today we are uh, continuing in our message series, uh, Creed, which is uh, a series where we're really taking time to um, discuss and really learn about the uh, the different aspects of our beliefs. What do we believe? Why do we believe it? And what does it matter? Why does it matter? Um, over the last 2000 years, we have known that people have been asking these same questions. And so there is this element of, um, of creeds, these foundational statements that have been created to help us uh, really have succinct statements to remind us what we believe. And that song that we just sang is an example of a creed being put into song that allows us to, to really think through and remember what it is that we believe. And so far, we've covered topics like the Bible. What do we believe about the Bible? We talked about the concept of the Trinity overall. And then we are beginning to break down the Trinity. Uh, Last week, we talked about the Father. The Father being God is great, but God is also good. And our statement of faith from our website that we have on our church website, EncounterPGH.com, says this, that God is great. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, unchanging, completely worthy of our trust, and above all, holy. It is in him that we live, move, and exist. But not only is God great, he is also good. He is our father. He is loving, compassionate, and faithful to his people and his promises. And so last week, I think, could be summed up in God is great. God is good. He is completely worthy of our trust and our worship. He is the great I am. Well, this week, we're going to continue in our series by talking about the second person in the Holy Trinity, and that is the Son, uh, Jesus the Son. And so the title of today's message is God Became Man, the Son, God Became Man. Uh, And our statement of faith around the Son says this, that Jesus Christ is completely human, but at the same time, completely God. He is the only plan for bringing people who are far from God back into a right relationship with God. He lived a perfect life so that he could be a substitution for us in satisfying God's demand for perfection. He defeated death in his resurrection so that we could have life. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about what it means for the son that God became man. What does that mean for us? What is the this statement of faith about who Jesus is and what he has done? What does it matter uh, to us? What do we believe and why does it matter? But before we do, I want to start talking about Jesus in general. When we think about Jesus and what the world thinks about Jesus, I think the world thinks that Jesus is a nice guy. Um, that's what I think. I think the world thinks that Jesus is a nice guy and they kind of put him on par with like a Gandhi um, or like a, like a Muhammad. Um, a lot of people will say things like, yeah, I have nothing wrong, no problem with Jesus. Like he was great. Love people, you know, like like gave to the poor, you know, was kind, you know, didn't judge people. Like these are the things that people say about Jesus. Um, those people clearly um, didn't read the Bible and know the fullness of the story of who Jesus is. And obviously it's much deeper. And even for Christians, many people who would call themselves Christians nominally anyway, all over the world really only think about Jesus on Christmas and Easter, right? We, we hear, we've heard that the concept of priesters, 
people who uh, I like to call them Facebook followers of Jesus, right? It's just the people, they're not really like they're fans of the page, but they don't know him. They don't, they don't really allow him to influence their life. But as a Christian, we know that Jesus is the centerpiece of Christianity. Like he is literally the name Christ and why the word Christianity comes from that concept. But why? Why is Jesus the centerpiece of our faith? What is it about Jesus that is more significant than than his teaching? It's not just what he said. It's not just even the lifestyle of the three and a half years on earth. Like, what is it about Jesus that makes him the linchpin, the centerpiece of our faith? What is it about the Son of God that makes him more than just another prophet or another holy man? What do we believe about the Son, and why does it matter? Well, we're going to dive into our statement of faith and piece by piece talk about what it means and why it matters to us. And so the first part of our statement of faith, if you're following along, is this. It says that Jesus Christ is completely human, But at the same time, he is completely God. And this is an area that we have recently touched on in our uh, Christmas time series that we had called incarnate. I want to remind you guys of the word incarnation, right? And the word incarnation, kind of the, the phrase that I'm giving it is the intersection of God and man. It's where they both exist at the same time. Um, it's the physical manifestation of the Father. God is great and God is good. And in Jesus, God was great and God is good in personification, in physical form. We saw that prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Back in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah said, therefore, the Lord himself, the Lord, remember the Lord in the Old Testament is the word Yahweh, God's name. God himself will give you a sign And it says this, see, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. Right there, we see that it was prophesied that it wasn't just going to be a regular baby, that it was actually going to be divine because the virgin conceiving and having a son, this is Yahweh, the God saying that the the woman will have a, a human baby, but they will name him Emmanuel, which we know the word Emmanuel means God with us. Emmanuel. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was both God and man, and that both are equally important. Look what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It's talking about the Son, literally. It says, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's talking about God the Father, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a human descendant of David according to the flesh, right? He was a human being, but he was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And then, of course, we talked about this before in John chapter 1, verse 1, and then in 14. John 1, John 1, 1 talks about the divinity of Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the divinity, right? But then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only son, the Trinity, the father and the son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the son, Jesus Christ, completely human and completely God. Now, why does it matter? Well, it matters because he's not just God, but he's a man, which means he understands 
It means he cares. The Bible tells us in other parts in another verse that we'll read later on today that, that he experienced pain. He experienced suffering. He understood. He understands emotions. He knows what it's like to feel lost. He understands what it's like to feel betrayal. He knows what it's to be afraid. He knows what it's to feel anxiety and stress. You know, he knows what it is to feel joy and beauty and wonder and ecstasy and all of these things. He knows these things. So he can identify with us as humans. He's not just God. He is a man. He understands care. But at the same time, he's not just a man. He's also God. It means he's powerful and he has authority. He is not limited. He is able to act. He is able to intervene, which makes our God different than every other God. He's not just in heaven. He's not only on earth. He is both. He is completely human, but at the same time, completely God. But not only that, he is also the only plan for bringing people who are far from God back into a right relationship with God. And this is where it gets a little bit stickier because this is the part that people don't like. Even if Christians, even if people in the world who aren't Christians would talk about Jesus, they might concede the fact that maybe he was born from a virgin and that he was divine like divine in the sense of that he is all human and all God. They might even concede that. But when you say that he is the only plan for bringing people who are far from God back into a right relationship with God, that's when people start to disagree. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to 23. This is right out of the out of the New Testament, the birth, the story of Jesus being born, just shows us that it's God's plan for Jesus to save their sins, for people from their sins, that his purpose for coming was to redeem people. So Joseph had just heard that Mary was going to have a baby and they weren't married yet. And it says, but after he considered these things, this is Matthew chapter one, verse 20. After he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, right? From God. So we see that the origin of this is divine. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus. What is his purpose for coming? He will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 22, it says, Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, from Isaiah 7:14 that we already read, see the virgin will become pregnant and to give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel and then it adds which is translated God with us. So we can see here that Jesus is God's plan. Jesus is God's plan. This week I was listening to Drake's song God's plan and I was uh, trying to see like what he was trying to say about it. And ultimately, really seems like the lyrics of his song are really all about how his rise to fame and how uh, he's gone through a lot, but he's still here and that's God's plan, right? And while that's a nice sentiment and a nice thought, the reality is, is that the birth of Jesus being sent as the son of God, being fully human and fully divine is truly God's plan from the very beginning. And not only was it God's plan, or it's not even, not even just a plan, it is the only plan, the only plan that God has for bringing humanity back into a right relationship. There is no plan B. 
He was actively involved. It's not an accident. He is the instigator. God is the instigator of this entire thing. And how do we know that? Well, look at what it says in John 3, 16, one of the most famous verses ever. For God loved the world in this way. He so loved the world. Like it was something overflowing and brimming over with him that he did what? He created a plan. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. It was God's plan. Every part of the Bible from Genesis forward was ultimately leading to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan to rescue humanity and restore relationship. That's the entire point of the Bible. Jesus also himself makes it abundantly clear that he is the only plan and the only way. And people don't like to talk about this. John chapter 14, verse six, what does Jesus say? He says, hey, everyone, just so you know, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and what? No one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody. Not a single person. And by the way, did you notice the I am's there? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like hearkening back to Moses. Who should I say sent me? I am who I am. This is Jesus now. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, the Son, is the only plan for bringing people who are far from God back into a right relationship with God. Why does that matter? Why does it matter? Well, because we are tempted to believe as people, as humans, we are tempted to believe that there are other ways, other plans, right? How many of you have heard all roads lead to heaven? Have heard things like, you know, it's many streams, one river, right? But that's not what the Bible says. And if we are people who believe that the word of God is true, if we believe that the Father is who he says he is, if we believe that the Son is fully human, fully divine, and is the Son of God, was sent as God's plan because the Bible says it is such things, that when Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, and then when Jesus talks about it at length, about talking about the narrow road, and only those who can enter through the narrow gate will be saved, how could we possibly think that there is any other way. It's not popular, but it doesn't make it untrue. We are tempted to believe that there are other ways, and yet the Word of God says otherwise. And what does that do for us, though? What it does is it emphasizes the importance of proclaiming Jesus to our world. If we don't really believe that Jesus is the only way, then it gives us an excuse to not say anything to our friends and to our family members and to our coworkers and to people that we meet as opportunities arrive, or at least searching for them. We see all throughout the scriptures, and this is challenging to me myself, if I could be completely honest to you and anyone who's listening. This is a challenge because my first thought is not, how can I proclaim the name of Jesus to the nations? That is not my first thought. And yet it is all over scripture, particularly in the New Testament. Their lives were defined by proclaiming the gospel to the lost. If we truly believe that Jesus Christ is the only plan for bringing people who are far from God back into a right relationship with him, then it emphasizes the importance of proclaiming the name of Jesus to those we come in contact with. 
It doesn't mean that you have to like get every single person you see to bow down at the name of Jesus. What we're saying is proclaiming him. Sometimes it is simply proclaiming him in your actions. Other times it is letting people know the way you act is because of Jesus. And sometimes it may be saying, do you want to know him? Come and see this with me. Come, an invitation. There's a lot of ways to proclaim him, but are we proclaiming? Are we is the challenge that I believe is called to us today. Jesus is completely human, but at the same time, completely God. He is the only plan for bringing people who are far from God back into a right relationship with him. And our next part says that he lived a perfect life so that he could be a substitution for us in satisfying God's demands for perfection. Perfection? This is an interesting, an interesting word though. When I was thinking about it, demands for protection for perfection. It doesn't sound fair. Like God, how could we possibly be perfect? You're perfect. How could I possibly be? Like that doesn't seem even nice, right? But the word perfection there, I think, is the more I thought about it, the more I think about it, I think is is a great word because when we think of the word holiness that we talked about last week. It really makes more sense in that respect. But using the word holiness is vague. God's holiness, what we talked about last week, the concept of the sun, right? The pureness of it, the purity of it is perfection. There is no blemish. Demands that sin be dealt with. God's holiness demands that sin be dealt with. If you look at the Garden of Eden... The Garden of Eden describes perfection. If you look in Genesis, right, in the early parts of the book of Genesis, we see that it was described as perfection. It was designed to be perfect. It was beautiful. It was lush. It was wonderful. There wasn't any care in the world, right? It was for exploration. It was a place of communion with God simply by existing, right? They talked about walking with God. It talked about hearing God. It talked about naming of, of the animals and discovering the plants and just being in the, the presence of God, the perfection of it. But that designed perfection was ruined. Separation existed, an insurmountable, uncrossable gap because of our rebellion, because of the sin that was introduced into the world. And prior to Jesus coming, the only way to even remotely have a relationship with God was at a distance, and it had to be done through a sacrificial system. That's where the, the temple was set up, and there were priests who would sacrifice animals. They would take lambs and goats and bulls and, 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 and birds and things, and they would sacrifice them. And the Bible tells us that the blood that was shed on the altar from that animal would temporarily cover the sin of the people so that it would hold the, 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 the holiness, the wrath of God that was demanded, the justice of sin being paid was being covered and paid for. I recognize that this is a hard concept for us as modern individuals, but it's not so foreign when we watch movies. Like every movie that has to do with like evil almost always has to do with blood, like sacrifices and things. We're actually watching the, the show Vikings um, we just started watching it, and it's in that show, the concept of sacrifices and blood being shed. There is something universal about the concept of blood, the life covering for other, like for other life. And that concept of that, a sacrifice to, to pay for it. But before Jesus came, they had to do it over and over and over and over again. It was never ending. There was never an end to the, to the payment because 
there was never enough sacrifice that could be given to truly pay for the sin of penalty, the penalty of sin. And then Jesus comes onto the scene, filled with divine power, the incarnation, with the ability to live a sinless life. And he became the sacrificial lamb in the flesh to atone for humanity's sin. Now, why is that important? Now, when they were doing sacrifices in the temple, they didn't just pick any goat or any lamb or any bull. They had to be perfect, spotless, unblemished. They would actually raise them. They had an entire economy based on them raising perfect animals. The only the best of the best crop that would come out and they would be sent to the temple and so Jesus living a sinless life is the spotless lamb, the substitute, the one who took our place, the one who took the place of thousands and thousands of animals in their place and in our place to cover it. Because of God's holiness, justice must be served. But because of his great love for us, he made a way for it to be made right. And Jesus' death on the cross as a sinless life is the substitute for our sinful judgment. Look at Romans chapter 3. Everybody, I want you to open your Bibles to Romans 3 if you haven't already. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. This is a foundational passage of the power of who Jesus is and what he did for us. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. It says, For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Glory there is kind of the concept of holiness. Perfection, right? The, the demanded justice because of who God is, because he is so pure, we all fall short of it. But because of it, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption means payment, paid back. Jesus bought it and now he came and he's redeeming us. He's taking the payment receipt and he's going to the enemy and he's saying, I own this guy now. He's mine. Give him to me. Jared is mine. Heather is mine. Elena is mine. I paid for them. You don't own them anymore. That's what it means by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did it happen? God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood. Pause. Back in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, right? You guys know this from Indiana Jones and maybe from any other, like, you know, some sort of Bible studies. The Ark of the Covenant was considered the most holy element in all of Israel. And it was put in a small room in the temple called the Holy of Holies. That once a year, the high priest, after doing a series of cleansing rituals, could go into there and sprinkle blood from the sacrifices on the mercy seat, which was the part of the Ark of the Covenant in between the two angels. Okay, so there's the gold box, right? And then there were the angel wings that would come up over it like this, and they kind of like looked like a like a like a like a circle, like a dome over top of it. That was called the mercy seat, the spot right below that, the flat area. It's called the mercy seat. They would sprinkle the blood there on the day of atonement to cover the sins and to appease uh, the holiness, the, the need for that, right? So when it says that God presented Jesus as the mercy seat. By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would what? Be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? 
be just and justify. Jesus's death on the cross satisfied the holy requirement first. That's what it means. So God could be just. God was still righteous because the payment was paid. We fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the holiness of God. There is nothing we could do, but Jesus's death on the cross, the sinless life as a sacrifice, paid the debt, equalized its need. But not only was he just, Jesus then justifies us. He simultaneously provides grace as payment for all of our sin. Jesus paid the price on the cross with his sinless life. And because of it, our sin is forgiven and we are set free. Just, I want to read a few scriptures to you that exemplify this. But before I do, the image of the holy, the mercy seat the Ark of the Covenant with the two wings and where the blood was spread, was put on there. Look at the image in, in the tomb. When, when, when I think it's Mary goes into the tomb to discover that Jesus isn't there. What do we see in the scriptures? On that slab where he was laid, angels sitting on both ends of it. It's like a picture of the mercy seat. The two angels sitting on the edges of the slab where Jesus was laid to rest, where his blood would be. Just again, the symbolism that we see all throughout scripture. I want to read a series of, of scriptures for you. You can write these down if you want to look at them again that talk about the powerful nature of the, of the death of Jesus and him paying the price for us. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, our response is, let us approach the throne. Because of Jesus, because of his grace now over us, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. We have the right to access our relationship with God so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 and 21. That is, in Christ, was God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Verse 21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, Romans chapter eight, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, Romans eight, one, but then the rest of it is so good. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Say that to yourselves. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. When you are tempted to feel guilty or to shame yourself, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Somebody needs to hear that on the call today. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Why? For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, there's not a single human being who could do it on their own. God did it. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Guys, he lived a perfect life so that he could be a substitution for us in satisfying God's demand for, per for perfection. Why does it matter? Jesus's sinless life and his substitution matters because it emphasizes our in our own inability to earn salvation. There is not a single thing that you or I could do to earn it. It is not earned, it is received. It is a gift. It is a free gift 
that has been given to us. And all we need to do is receive that gift. We are saved by grace, not by works. But what that does is it takes our works and it redirects our lifestyle as a response to grace instead. When we have to do things to earn God's grace, it becomes out of a place of guilt. Anyone who's come from a Catholic background knows what I'm talking about. Your actions become because you feel guilty and my guilt means I have to do things or you do them to keep guilt from coming or I'm guilty so I keep doing them. But if we think of the uh, the concept of there is not a single thing that we must do in order to receive the goodness of God and the grace and mercy of God through the the death of Jesus Christ, now our actions become a response to grace. God, I'm thankful for what you've done. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you. I want to be kind. I want to be generous. I want to, to, to go out of my way. I want to serve you. I want to lay my life down as a response of gratitude to your grace. You see the difference there? It's so powerful when we recognize the the free gift that was given to us. Yes, there is a demand for action to follow, but only because of life change, not because of guilt. He lived a perfect life so that he could be a substitution for us in satisfying God's demands for, for perfection. Jesus Christ is completely human and at the same time, completely God. He is the only plan for bringing people who are far from God back into a right relationship with God. And he lived a perfect life so that he could be a substitution for us in satisfying God's demands for protection, perfection. And finally, he defeated death in his resurrection so that we could have life. And this is where it gets really important. Jesus's death, the part that we talk about a lot, the cross that we wear, right? Um, crucifixes, things of that nature. We see them all the time. Again, incredibly important. That's why I spent so much time on it this morning. The substitutionary atonement is incredibly important because that's the way that allowed us to be able to not be, um, to, to, to be forgiven, right? That's where the grace comes from. Jesus's death paid the penalty and set us free, but his resurrection is what breaks the cycle and restores us to true life. The resurrection of Jesus is what breaks that cycle. I want you to read with me in John chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, and we're going to read in Acts as well. Jesus said to her, this is John 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus right here is is declaring who he is. This is before he resurrected from the grave, but he was telling them, in me, I am the resurrection, and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And that was controversial for them, for the people at this time, because many of them didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he asked her, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God who comes into this world. In other words, she's saying, I want that. I want the resurrection. I want the life. Jesus declaring in himself the power of the resurrection. And we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, where this came from, this concept of the breaking the cycle. Now this is after Jesus had died, after he'd rose from the grave. And look at the disciples now. They're filled with power. They're proclaiming the name of Jesus to the nations. And one of them rises up in public and says to other Israelites, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. He tells the story of Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man 
attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. You saw it. You witnessed this Jesus. And though he was delivered up according to God's plan, his determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But God raised him up. Why? Ending the pains of death. I want you to underline that. Ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. The finality of death. Think about that. The finality of it. When you were dead, you were gone. That's what they all thought. But the, the victory of death, the grip of death, all of it, it says here, was, was gone. But now, because God raised Jesus up, not just a physical death, but spiritually, it was defeated and overcome once and for all. And we see this described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to end here. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 26. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, right? All the way back to Genesis, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. And for just as in Adam, all of us die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Doesn't that sound similar to that song we sang this morning, right? By your resurrection, I'm being raised up as well. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And listen to this, verse 26, the last enemy to be abolished is death. Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection, the power of his resurrection is what breaks the cycle of death. The victory of death is gone. Yes, we still die. There's going to become an end to that. But our spirit will be raised. And one day the Bible says that our bodies will be raised and we'll be given new bodies. That's a whole nother sermon for another day, the resurrection of the dead. But for now, the importance of understanding theology behind the concept of the resurrection, the power of the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is now what is raising us, resurrecting us, transforming us. And as I was studying this week, I came across a theologian, George Ladd said this as we wrap up. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then the long course of God's redemptive acts to save his people ends in a dead-end street, in a tomb. If the resurrection of Christ is not a reality, then we have no assurance that God is the living God, for death had the last word. Faith is futile because the object of that faith has not vindicated himself as the Lord of life. Christian faith is then incarcerated in the tomb, along with the final and highest self-revelation of God in Christ, if Christ is indeed dead. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then God is sovereign over all things, even death. Jesus, the Son, defeated death in his resurrection so that we could have life. Not just eternal life, but the restoration and resurrection of dead things in our present life. Working inside of us to restore us and transform us 
into the likeness of Jesus as we live for him. Jesus Christ is completely human, but at the same time, completely God. He is the only plan for bringing people who are far from God back into a right relationship with God. He lived a perfect life so that he could be a substitution for us in satisfying God's demand for perfection. And he defeated death in his resurrection so that we could have eternal life. The son, God became man so that we could have true life again. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we pray directly to you because your word says that we can. Because of your death and resurrection, you have opened the way for us to have a relationship with you, with the Father, and with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we thank you that you came to earth and you were not just a statue or some other fiction or figure that we can worship but has no power. We thank you that you were fully divine and fully human. We thank you that you understand what we feel. You know what it's like to, to, to feel pain and to go through difficult times. We thank you that you identify with that. And at the same time, you're powerful and able to act. And you did. We thank you for you stepping out of heaven, taking on the shame of our sin and doing it willingly because you loved us. I thank you for it. And I thank you that you were raised to life so that we have eternal hope. That we wouldn't just live in eternal torment separated from you. And that would be it. But know that we could be raised to life. That you don't just leave us here you know, covered, uh, our sin is paid for, but we're just stuck because we can't do anything. No, your, your resurrection gave us the, the life to, to move forward and to, to, to be changed. I thank you for it. Thank you for who you are. I worship you. I pray that as we discuss this topic, that you would enlighten us, reveal to us uh, your revelation of truth, and that it would impact the way that we live our lives and talk to others challenge us to be people who will proclaim the name of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.